The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We're often so caught up in what is the thing that people think we should be doing that we don't spend enough time thinking about what do we actually need to solve this problem for us right now. The more that you can understand the history of a problem, the more that you can appreciate the complexities of it today, and therefore, the more you can actually start to move yourselves towards real solutions. If there's nothing to worry about, then there's nothing for people to do. And people like something to do. They like to feel like there's something that they can do, even if, frankly, they're not going to do it, or the thing that they're told to do is just simply impractical. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are on season three of What Could Go Right, having yet another series of conversations with people whose take on the world is not animated by outrage and despair and anxiety and is not fundamentally about Armageddon and how far we are between now and it. And some of that's looking at the news of the day from a different angle, but some of that's also talking to people who may be very robust in their own networks, social networks and otherwise, but are not in the daily drum and cacophony of chaotic news as prominent as they otherwise would be. And today we're going to be talking to someone who's been a member of the network and has his own robust, interesting life and uh, a whole series of podcasts and magazines who has a kind of ebullient, let's look at the world, let's do really good things. And I find that incredibly heartening. I find that incredibly important. So as we're doing this season, we're going to talk a bit with our guest. And Emma and I will then discuss a bit of the news of the week that has gotten less focus and less attention. So today we're gonna talk to Jason Pfeiffer, who is a member of the Progress Network. He's also the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and the host of the podcast, Problem Solvers, which is about entrepreneurs solving unexpected problems in their business. It's a really fun podcast. Outside of his entrepreneur stuff, he's the author of the new book, Build for Tomorrow, which is an action plan for embracing change and adapting fast. I think we're gonna talk to him a little bit about that today. He's also the host of the podcast, Build for Tomorrow, Yes, same name as the book, which is about smart solutions to our most misunderstood problems. Jason, I was saying in our uh, intro, your, your ears burning intro, that your site and your podcast and a lot of what you, you talk about has a kind of enthusiasm, an infectious enthusiasm about how you sort of approach the world tonally, the sensibility. A lot of what we have talked about in these podcasts with people and in the work we're trying to do at the Progress Network is is, is engendering a sensibility. Like if you don't start from a certain place, it's hard to get to a certain place. You yeah. know, you start from a place of fear and intense fraughtness. It's very hard to find your way to balance. It may equally be true that if you start with too much of a good mood, it's hard to acknowledge when things are really going wrong, but that's a, <laughs> that's fair. you know, that's another issue. Yeah. So in a really softball way, I guess you edit this magazine, you you do a podcast, you try to help 
people, I guess, express their their messages and their views. But tell us a little bit about like how did how did how did Jason become Jason? <laughs> I, well, I appreciate that. How, how did Jason become Jason? I mean, Jason was not always like this. Also, Jason doesn't do well speaking in the third person, so I'll shift. <laughs> um, uh, I I wasn't always like this. I was a pretty change resistant kid. And also a pretty closed off kid. I mean, I had friends, but I was very uncomfortable sharing, sharing anything vulnerable, you know? And um, one of the big things that changed for me, which was very small, but in college, I was reading this essay by Dave Eggers. It wasn't actually an essay. It was more of a rant. A student reporter, do you know who Dave Eggers is? He's, he wrote a heartbreaking work of staggering genius and then founded McSweeney's a literary journal and all these things. He's a great writer. And although I did not like the circle, sorry, Dave, but I was reading this thing, a, a student reporter had, um, like the Harvard Crimson or something had accused him of selling out in an interview. And he responded with this unbelievably wonderful, very long kind of ranty email that got published and made its way around. And there's a section in it where he talks about that he is a person who likes to say yes, and that he doesn't do well with people who say no. And that when you are on your deathbed, which could happen at any time, you will not be happy about all the things that you said no about. You will be regretful of all the things that you did not say yes to. And he wants to say yes to, and he, he's so eloquent and beautiful about it. I wish I could just recite it by, by him, but I'll tell you that that had a real impact on me because it made me realize that I was saying no to like way too many things and that I was, as a result, making my life kind of smaller. And it took a long time to shift my mindset and kind of become a yes person. But once I did a yes person in the best way possible, because there are a lot of bad yes people. But, but I'll tell you that as I became a professional and started to meet people who were doing like tremendous things, I found that they all really had yes at the core of what they did too. That they were willing to engage with big ideas, with challenging things, with saying, you know, just because this isn't working doesn't mean that something else can't work. And I really gravitated towards those people. And then as I started to engage with like really big ideas, which my my work does on a regular occasion, what, what I came to realize was that you know, I think that oftentimes what we do is we simplify narratives so that they fit something that feels more comfortable to us, right? So uh, how can we take this big, complicated thing and find the smallest version of it possible that we can then all obsess over? And to me, that's basically saying no, right? Like that's basically saying, you know, the world is complicated, but I'm not really interested in that. What I'm interested in is this one tiny little thing. And I, I that makes me feel comfortable and I get to be upset about it, but also that I, I'm not really now in charge of fixing anything because it's it's uh, I've made it uh, impossible to really address any big substantive issue. And so I just get to be sitting here comfortably in my little corner and complaining and maybe going on TV and doing it, or frankly, maybe getting a publicly elected office and doing it. But I just don't find that to be compelling. I find that complicated, big issues require complicated, big thinking, and that you can only engage with that if you are a yes person, if you're willing to engage with big ideas, with big solutions, with big challenges, with long time horizons, with holding multiple things in your head at the same time. I find these to be just far more interesting and compelling that oftentimes if you take a look at difficult issues and you give it enough of a time horizon and you are open to enough of the different challenges of the world that you will see that there are ultimately resolutions to them. And that's, I guess, how Jason got made. <laughs> this is like the improv comedy motto to life, like, yes, and. Yes, and, yes, and. That's <laughs> and. <laughs> totally, that's, no, that really is true. Uh, because, because uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I spend most of my days talking with entrepreneurs, and it is absolutely fascinating to see how they I mean, look, they have it all on the line, right? They've built something, they've put a lot, they've put their own finances into it. They have other people's livelihoods and families who who depend on them. They have so much pressure. And yet when big changes come, they have it within themselves to say, you know what, I think that we need to take risks and be open to the possibility that there's a better way to do the thing that we're already doing. And the result of that is going to be that we're serving people in new ways that we maybe didn't even set out to do. That's bold and very hard and emotionally draining, but the rewards are tremendous. And you spend enough time with those people and you realize that 
a lot more is possible than what we might think, but it requires thinking beyond whatever we see in front of us. So tell me when you uh, are engaged by somebody professionally. Yeah. Not just when you're into them. <laughs> what are they? What are they asking you for help with? Like an entrepreneur comes and says, "I started this company and I need help doing X." What's What's the X that you're going to help them do? Oh well, I mean, me personally, if people come to me, they're they're often asking me a couple things. So I'm in a very interesting position where I'm I'm seen as a pattern matcher, and for good reason because I get to talk to everybody and I spend time telling their stories and understanding what people have in common. And so if somebody asks me, have I heard of somebody trying this or that thing before? I, I often have an answer, right? Like there's often, oh yes, well that reminds me of that time where I was talking to the founder of this thing. And um, right, so I, I, I become this kind of Rolodex of, of experience, which I think is useful to people. And then also, because I my background is in media, people people want to know how to get press. <laughs> I spent a lot of time talking about that. But you know what's really interesting about that, about the press thing, is that they often haven't thought through why they want it. Just the other day, uh, a guy booked me for a consulting session, and he starts, and he's like, you know, we've built this company, and it's this like B2B AI something or other company, and um, they've scaled up, and they're doing like tens of million dollars of revenue, and, and he's like, nobody's ever written about us, and, and I just, you know, I just feel like we deserve some attention, and I want, you know, my, my staff to feel good about that attention. And I said to him, look, that's fine. It's a nice thing to think about, but like press is a tool and you don't go out and raise money just because it feels good. You don't go and do like anything substantive just because it feels good. You should do it because it has a purpose. And like if press doesn't have a purpose in your business, then why are you doing it? And the reason I'm telling you guys this now is because I actually think that oftentimes we chase things simply because um, they seem like they're part of the path that we're supposed to follow rather than because they serve a actual genuine purpose in our lives and our world uh, or whatever it is that we're trying to build, right? Like we're, we're often so caught up in what is the thing that people think we should be doing that we don't spend enough time thinking about what do we actually need to solve this problem for us right now. And when you think more strategically about everything that you do and the reason why you're doing it. I think that you find that you waste a lot of time chasing things just because they seem like they feel good or because somebody else told you that they're useful. That's that, that's just, you know, don't follow a path because it's someone else's path. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't get you anywhere. Define success for yourself. That's the only way in which you actually build something. So Jason, I wanted to, you know, go back to your first answer really quickly because it was really yeah. funny that you mentioned that you were change resistant when you were younger because you just wrote a book about adapting yeah. to change. So I won't like, you know, make that, you know, sort of <laughs> psychoanalytic loop or anything. But I did want to know, like, when you look at because this is the topic that like people have talked a lot about, right? But you mm. wouldn't have added to it if you didn't think that there was really something to add. So it made me wonder, like, is there a lot of bad advice out there about change? Like, is there something where you're like, I really wish people would stop saying this and stop believing this? And like, what would you replace that with? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so here's something that I, I, I wanted to be really delicate with about the book. Silicon Valley gets picked on too much. I, I, and I, I realize there's a lot to pick on. I'm not excusing the things that are worth picking on. But like, you know, sometimes, sometimes like the answer to why there's a problem here is not because of Silicon Valley. Right? Just, I feel like it becomes a punchline. But, um, but, but all the same, something that I think uh, is a mistake that people often make in Silicon Valley is that they have in, they've created something new, and the way in which they introduce it to the world is basically by saying, "Hey, this old thing that you do is stupid, and you should stop it because it's it's it, it doesn't work as well as this new thing that I created." And people don't like that. And and there's a good reason why they don't like that. It is because people don't like new things. What people like are better versions of old things. What people like is something that is familiar to them, but an improvement. And um, you know, a story that I love to tell is the car. So you know, when the when the automobile was first introduced in the late 1800s, it was. It was, well, it wasn't called the car because nobody had that word. It was called the horseless carriage. And that's if you were being generous. And if you were not, then you called it the devil wagon because that's often what people called it. They hated this thing and they threw rocks at it. They yelled, get a horse, like as a car was driving down the street. And then when we tell the story now of how the car became the dominant mode of transportation, we often tell the story of Henry Ford. Henry Ford, he revolutionized manufacturing. And as a result, he made cars more accessible and affordable to the average person. True. But 
something else happened before that that Henry Ford was the beneficiary of. And that is often not a story that's told, but I heard it from a automobile historian. And it basically goes like this. So in the early days, automobile industry was trying to figure out like, why do people not like this thing? And they, they looked at their own marketing and they realized that they were talking about the car as a replacement to the horse, right? Just like Silicon Valley often talks about this new thing as a replacement to this old thing. But people don't, you know, like I said, people don't like that. The car, I mean, the horse was a member of their family. That horse had been in their families for generations. And now you got somebody coming along saying, like, basically, stop doing that. It doesn't work as well as this other thing. People don't like that because, like I said, people don't like new things. They like better versions of old things. So the car industry realized they needed to make a change. And the change that they made was that they stopped talking about the car as a replacement to the horse, and they started talking about the car as a better horse. They started using or popularizing terms like horsepower. They started naming cars after horses, which we still do today. They started putting mechanical horse heads on the front of cars, which we obviously don't do today. And the result of that was that they built what I like to call a bridge of familiarity, where they stopped trying to just say, I have a great solution and let me thrust it upon the world. They instead started from the position of where people are. Where are people right now? What are they concerned about? What do they need? And then build from the consumer to themselves or build from the audience to themselves. I call it the bridge of familiarity. And um, anyway, I the thing that I, I guess, to go back to your question about what what is the advice that I don't really like, you know, I think that there is too much out there, which is basically amounts to like, hey, this new thing is better. So just by its dint of newness, you should like it. Because, you know, people that puts people on the defensive. People don't really, people aren't comfortable with that. And that's not a smart way to approach introducing change or frankly, try to manage your own change in your own lives. So instead, what we need to do is understand where the panic comes from, relate to it, accept that it's a normal part of the experience of change, and then build from there. And and I and I it's very interesting because I I came up with this framework that change happens at four phases: panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. This is the four phases of change, as opposed to the five stages of grief philosophy. Yes. Well, you know, look, there's a lot of blank phases of blank uh, frameworks in the world, and and I I picked mine. But you know, when I talk to people about it, they often pause and say, "Oh, you know what? I totally panic. Maybe I'm in a panic stage right now." And that's okay. Let's recognize that people panic and that if we can address people in that moment and help them get out of it, that we're all going to be better for it. Back to our sensibility thing, like that whole mantra you just articulated really is helping people get into a framework, literally a state of mind, by from which they can then solve whatever challenges they have, as opposed to if they're not in that, it gets really, really challenging. And, you know, part of it is, you know, one of the more vibrant aspects of certainly American, but let's call it Western capitalism over the past 20 years has been some of the innovations that have led to, you know, this medium like Zoom or a podcast or, or things that are technologically enhanced conversations and connections. A lot of those tools are have have transformed the way we communicate and the way we interact. We, again, we're we're focused right now on all the w- ways in which that's can be incredibly negative and creates hot emotions and creates addictiveness and attention and all of that. But a lot of what you're talking about is even if some of these downsides are true, there's a way to approach these changes that is not one of like despair and panic, right? Right. That's exactly right. And this is this is why I love the work that you guys do. Uh, so I think we ask the wrong question. Uh, of, of, of new things in our lives or in society. Because the question that we ask is, is this perfect? Is this perfect? And I, I mean, I'll tell you the answer to the question. The answer is no. Like, nothing is perfect. So that's not how we have to think of things. Because if the filter in which we're going to look at something is, is this perfect? And the answer is going to be no. And then we're going to want to discard this new thing. So instead, what we should ask is a different question. And that question is, is this new problem better than our old problem? Because once you ask that, you make room for problems. And you also say that let's measure progress, not by perfection, not by a standard that cannot be reached, but rather by whether or not we are improving the problems that we're grappling with. And I I think that people often mistake new things for 
whole downside <laughs> because I mean, let's let's use your example of of Zoom because it's a really good one. So, you know, if you go far enough back to the introduction of the telephone, what you'll find is a lot of people who were concerned that the telephone would replace human to human contact. That why would anybody ever go over to somebody's home when now you could call them on the phone? And of course, you know, the, what really happened was that we found uses for calling people on the phone and we retained uses for coming over and talking to someone. Or like, I don't have to run over to your home now to ask you a simple question. I can call you. But for a longer, more engaged period of time, I would much rather be at your home. What we have is a world of both. But we don't really believe that a world of both is going to be possible. We tend to think of a world of replacement, that new is going to wholesale replace old. So telephone will replace all forms of, you know, like interaction. Zoom will replace all forms of, well, also human interaction. Why again would we ever meet because we have Zoom now? And instead, what we have found with Zoom is that it is a really nice supplement to everything that we already had, that we we interact in ways that were unexpected. I have found a lot of entrepreneurs have told me that Zoom meetings can often feel more intimate than standard business meetings because you're at home, you get to see people's homes, the kids run into the room, and you just feel like you're a part of people's lives in a way that you wouldn't have before. It's not a replacement for everything. It's integrated into the way in which we are we are well, we have we have another tool at our disposal. And that is almost always the case with new innovation. And I think that we miss that point. And as a result, we see something new. We say, here's what we're going to lose. And we extrapolate that loss and say, well, now we've lost everything. I'm going to lose this and I'm going to lose that and I'm going to lose that. We don't make the space for the possibility of gain and for new innovation to settle in and create new value. So th this is uh, like this is why I like long tail thinking because when you look at something with a long time horizon you allow for the possibility of new uses of new discovery of uses of new experiences that could not have been anticipated at the beginning of the introduction of something. And that's where you ultimately often see the greatest value. We don't know what new innovations are for until sometime later and so let's give ourselves the space to discover that. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you gonna make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Innovation starts with a dream. Then technology catches up. Innovators introduce change, then society catches up. The transition from the horse and carriage to the automobile was no different. I met up with the Henry Ford's Matt Anderson to talk about the change that brought about the motorized marriage of horse and carriage. Was there a time where the horse and buggy and the automobile 
shared the road. There was a lot of time. In fact, it's surprising how long that overlap was. There were some arguments against the automobile when it first introduced. The first ones weren't all that reliable. You had to do a lot of work on them. You had to clean the valves. You had to lubricate them all the time. The odds were pretty good that it might break down on you if you're going for a drive. Some of your most fun work, in my opinion, is, is when you go into history and, and you talk about fears that seem so quaint now, like when the teddy bear was introduced or the long form novel and people were like freaking out in the newspapers. And it definitely lends some perspective to some of the things that we're freaking out about today. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I like history is because the story's been told, right? So, you know, my, my podcast, for, for those who don't know, Build for Tomorrow, often takes these deep dives into history as a means of trying to understand the things that we're talking about today. And, you know, I, I don't do it to discount changes that are that are happening today, right? It's not like, oh, because we worried about this 100 years ago that the worry today is meaningless, but rather to say, you know, because we worried about this 100 years ago, let's see what ultimately drove a resolution because that might open a way forward now. And on also just to, to recognize that, you know, new changes... It, w one of the most powerful things anybody said to me, which I, which I've, I've like, just really thought a lot about, was um, I called this guy David Scheimer, I believe his name was, who wrote a book about the hundred years of uh, Russian efforts to interfere with American elections, and he, he said that he got going on this book because he was hearing after the 2016 elections, he was hearing politicians and people in media talk about what happened as unprecedented. And he said, look, that, that, that's, that's actually a really problematic way of viewing the world, because if you see something as unprecedented, then number one, you're going to limit your scope of where the problem is to something that's very new, because obviously something new must have caused something that is that is unprecedented. But also it it just it opens the possibility for all sorts of all sorts of kind of lies and stories. Right? So I mean, think about it. If I if I woke up tomorrow and I looked in the mirror and my face was green, uh, that's never happened before. So that's unprecedented. And therefore I would I would think, well, crap, what happened yesterday? Right? Like what was the thing that happened yesterday that enabled my that turned my face green? What was it? What did I eat? What did I touch? But you know, when we're talking about American uh, 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 Russian interference in American elections, that wasn't unprecedented. In fact, what happened in 2016 by David Scheimer's reporting is a version of what they've been doing for a century, right? Basically utilizing the newest technologies of the day to draw, to exacerbate existing divisions in American culture. Did it with television, did it with newspapers, did it with radio, then did it with social media. So if you think that the problem is unprecedented, then you're going to say, oh, the problem is social media. So then we've got to shut down social media or we've got to make massive changes to social media. And that's not to say the social media didn't play a role, but if you throw Mark Zuckerberg in jail, you don't solve the problem. So we need to have a better understanding of a more complex problem, which means that we have to understand that this has been around for a long time. The more that you can understand the history of a problem, the more that you can appreciate the complexities of it today, and therefore, the more you can actually start to move yourselves towards real solutions. History, complexity, <laughs> subtlety, understanding, Sh perspective. Shocking. Oh my God, those are like fighting words. I don't know what you know what. <laughs> What are you talking about? As opposed to just reaction and of the moment and there is no past and who the hell knows what the future is going to be. You know, this is, again, I, I think there is more, and you certainly find this in your own work, you know, there's more resonance with these, with urging people in this direction than you would believe if you just listen to kind of the news of the day or an argument on the street. You know, it, it People do live in these realities, right? They do want to know. They do want to understand. It's just, you know, it gets drowned out and lost and hard to see. You know, there's still markets may be cascading and IPOs may be drying up and venture capital may have been in a bubble, but there's still a lot of venture capitalists and there's still a lot of entrepreneurs who are actually just trying to do interesting, compelling, sometimes innovative, sometimes silly things with real enthusiasm about what the future is going to be. And you know, we, we do risk, I think, losing sight of that in our rush to, oh my God, everything's falling apart. Yeah, without question. And and I, I will tell you that I, I, I had an interesting revelation a little while ago. I, I was wondering, like, why does a, a product like The Social Dilemma, that horror show of a Netflix documentary, like, wh why does that capture people's attention in the way that compelling and deeply reported messages that basically say, 
the world is more complex and it's not as bad as it seems? Like, wh- why does that not resonate as much? And, you know, I, I, I came to this realization, and this is like something I've been working on for my own work, and I'd be, I'd be curious what you guys think of it for, for your work, which is, I think the problem often with pushing back against fears is that it comes off as saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And if there's right. no, if there's nothing to worry about, then there's nothing for people to do. And people like something to do. They like to feel like there's something that they can do, even if, frankly, they're not going to do it, or the thing that they're told to do is just simply impractical, which is like the you know the 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 takeaways of the social dilemma were like so absurdly impractical that they're not going to be utilized by anybody uh, living in the world today. But it gave people a sense of agency. And I think part of the problem with pushing back against fears is that you actually take people's agency away. You say, ah, the world's complicated. There's nothing you can do about it. So I've been really trying to figure out how do I zero in on on solutions that counter our understanding of a problem, right? So it's like, no, you don't understand the problem well over here. It's actually a different problem. And here's something that we can do about it. I think that when people are given that sense of, control that they react more positively and they also want to amplify it more. So I've been trying to figure that out because I think I think people they're desperate to do something or at least to have, feel like they could do something. Yeah, I I definitely see that a lot when we send out, you know, for instance our weekly newsletter and we kind of the the, the takeaway at the end of the day is always like the world is more complicated than a simple, you know, clickbait headline is going to give us. And people very frequently write in and say, like, what can I do? And it doesn't feel right to tell them, like, well, not much, but like be informed. And like, that's going to slowly lead you into a better place. So, you know, I guess it's just we're, you know, wrapping up our time here. Have you settled on a good answer to that? Like, what do you give people when when they they're asking you for that kind of agency? Because I think we also have this twin problem of like people are hungry for something to do. And yet there's also this feeling of like learned helplessness a lot, particularly in American society that like even if they do something, it's not going to matter and it's not going to make a difference. So maybe you can chew on that for us. So where I often land on that is that I think people can start with themselves. <laughs> Speaking of Zoom intimacy, hi. I have a three-year-old <laughs> at the door. So, uh, see, I told you, Zoom just. Hi, guys, I'm I. Hi, everybody. Ma- okay, can you tell mom that I'll be off this podcast in just a moment? Yes, Dude, my three-year-old is now calling me Jason. After you use the potty, you have to clean the potty. Oh, <laughs> that's something okay. to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Speaking of something to do, well, that'll keep that'll that'll keep things in perspective okay. at least. That that is something to do. Yep, I've been that's given... right. What is that? That's 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 like uh, the old <laughs> Buddhist. Uh, you know, what is enlightenment? Chop wood and carry water, right? That's yeah. a, that's kind of a latter day a latter day version of it. For I you. mean, I feel like that that is a sort of general mission for the world, right? After you use the potty, you got to clean, clean the, potty. the potty. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's a metaphor for life, really. Uh, it actually if, is, is <laughs> for everything that we were yeah. talking about right now. So. Back in the early days of the pandemic, uh, those moments used to stress me out when the kids would come barging in and I'd be on a podcast or I'd be speaking and people would have been paying for me for my time or whatever. And then I, I came to realize that actually these moments of interruption and unexpectedness are like the most, they're the most human parts of anything that we're doing. And that when you, when you will let that curtain down a bit, uh, or I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but whatever you, you part that curtain that, that people feel more connected. It, it brings a little more humanity, right? Like up until that moment, I was like, expert guy going on and on and on. And now I'm guy with a three-year-old who's telling me to clean the potty. Right. And like, and that, that actually people like that. Like it'll become the most memorable part of this, of this episode for people. And I think that's a good thing. That just means, you know, like embrace, embrace the messiness of what you're doing because ultimately people's lives are messiness and they see, they see themselves in your messiness. So anyway, there's my, my, my advice, but, but to your, to your question, I mean, look, sometimes with very large, complicated problems, the th- the thing that you can give people to do is maybe going to feel a little unsatisfying, right? Because it's going to be like, you can join this group or you can send this message. So oftentimes what I do is actually try to get people to understand themselves, right? Because like I did an episode on misinformation, um, but the way that I approached it was to examine all of these 
funny, fun facts that we all think we know, right? Like like a goldfish has a 10 second memory. And like, these things aren't true at all. Like we're we're kind of full of all these fun facts that are actually completely wrong. And, um, and then to understand why they're all wrong or why, why they stick in our heads so much, right? Which is to understand this thing called the availability heuristic, which, which is, uh, which is that if something is easy to remember and easy to recall, then it feels true to you, which is how misinformation can very easily lodge in people's brains and feel like fact. So, you know, you give people some insight into their own brains and then you give them a kind of missions, which is basically like the next time that you hear something that feels true, consider more deeply whether it is true, because that that is actually the first barrier of defense for misinformation. And now that's something that they can do on a daily basis. And they can also tell friends about it and it makes them feel smarter and it makes them, you know, at at the next dinner party, they're going to pull, they're going to bring something like that up. And and so I, I feel like if you can arm people with what to do even inward facing, that it makes them feel more empowered to make change that's outward facing. Amen, brother. I will, I will, I will take that any day of the week. It would be good to, you know, with all these things, it'd be good to have an hour more, two hours more. And look, we we do have an hour more. I just don't know that people would listen for an hour more. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I I, I apparently have a potty to clean. Yeah, so I mean, that <laughs> time's a wasting, man. Right. So that, that clearly, po- that potty won't clean itself. Well, on that metaphorical and very pungently literal note, <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us. Everyone should go read Jason's book, Build for Tomorrow. And we'll 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 provide links to it on the site. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for the great work you do. I love the newsletter. I love being a part of the network. And um, you know, we'll, we can pick this conversation back up I'll, uh, next time we talk. I'll update you on how the potty went. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good luck. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. So Emma, again, I, I love Jason's energy, and, and he's like exhibit A of how you start and the sensibility you start with. I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but it feels like a record that needs to be played endlessly <laughs> because it isn't as out there as it should be. Like we need to be on some Spotify playlist. I can say something new. The other thing that I love about Jason is that he combines business with life hacks, with history, with like psychology, with this and with that. And it's just kind of like, it's hard to put him in a box. And it's great. Like he can he can talk to you about 10 different topics. And I think that's also rare these days. Like people have their lane and they stay in their lane and they're an expert on that thing. And Jason is like, no, I'm going to do. I don't know how he does it, to be honest. I mean, his day must be packed. Yeah. And that's also an interesting point of maybe the degree to which we're all so siloed professionally and in terms of micro expertise we don't maybe that doesn't get enough attention as one of the 
other barriers to communication. Like nobody's a generalist mm. and there's so much specific knowledge and specific skill sets in so many different walks of life that it becomes harder for people to talk to each other professionally. Uh, we know that it's harder for people to talk to each other personally in like a hyperpolarized climate. But yeah, the degree to which cutting across multiple fields, having wearing multiple hats, I certainly have embraced that, can be something that allows you to be more connective, right? Because you're not as segmented in this very specific area and you don't have a lane that's so clear. Of course, it's easier to have accidents when you don't stay in your lanes. That's the <laughs> flip side to that particular issue. Shall we turn to the news of the week? Let's do it. So I have one that I really think is a big one that I really don't think almost anyone knows, even people surrounding this particular country. And before I say the news, I'll say that I think that you can see in many countries worldwide these small steps for women's rights and LGBTQ rights. They're, they are in fits and spurts, and they don't often make the news. But there is a lot of progress going on. And uh, the news that we want to talk about in particular today is Slovenia. 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 When's the last time that we talked about Slovenia? That would be never. Yeah. So Slovenia, post-communist slash socialist bloc, the first country from that bloc to legalize same-sex marriage. And with the same piece of legislation, they've also legalized same-sex couples to adopt children. They just did that last week, which is pretty cool. And if... I am not incorrect. Notice the double negative there. You did a TikTok for the Progress Network that went Slovenian viral. It <laughs> based on the good news coming out of Slovenia. Yes, it went post-communist block viral. And it was one of those things where it was very heartening. It was very exciting to see other people being excited for Slovenia. And then the comments were also full of people from Czech Republic, Poland, Estonia, Lithuania saying like, can we be next? Can we be next? So, you know, the other countries in the area, Estonia has agreed to recognize same-sex unions created in other countries from 2016. Croatia, Czech Republic, Hungary, Montenegro, they all have same-sex civil partnerships. But other than that, like I said, fits and starts. That's a that's a funny one about Estonia, right? We're not going to actually make it legal, but we will we'll make it legal for other people to do it somewhere else and then we won't fight it as long as you did it after 2016. Yeah, and there's also a really funny little loophole going on now right now with China and I think it's Utah because Utah has the law that recognizes same-sex marriages. They will recognize them also if they're done out of country. So what Chinese gay couples are doing are zooming into Utah, getting married in Utah, because Utah will recognize the union. Of course, it's not sort of valid in China, but it's just it's just to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> who, who says globalism is dead? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the power of Zoom is still with us post pandemic. All right. So all hail Slovenia. All hail Slovenia. And, and maybe Utah Zoom marriages, but that <laughs> that may have other purposes. What, what else should we be uh taking a look at other than your sudden and astonishing TikTok fame. <laughs> Pretending to be the Slovenian high court, uh, nonetheless. Yes. So I also want to talk about NASA today. You know, we had mentioned in last season, I think it was an interview we did with Greg Easterbrook, that NASA is up to this very daring and potentially life-saving thing where there is a possibility, we don't know how large or how small, but there is a possibility that an asteroid might one day come back to Earth and kill us all, or maybe just demolish a city, you know, dinosaur style. And NASA has actually gone through the steps of figuring out how to knock a spacecraft into an asteroid to knock that asteroid out of its orbit slash out of its you know, course towards Earth if that ever were to happen. And they actually just hit an asteroid with a spacecraft for the first time recently. NASA can already celebrate its success of the DART mission, literally like the premise of a sci-fi movie. They used a small spacecraft to hit an asteroid and throw it off course. The goal is to prevent scenes like this, an asteroid colliding with Earth, creating a devastating impact like the kind that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Our job was to model how that impact would happen, model what the crater would look like. Yeah, no, I, I saw that, and it, it reminded me a little of the uh, movie almost 20 years ago, Armageddon, Mm. which was a different kind of Armageddon as opposed to the one that we're trying to combat. This was about the asteroid that was going to hit the Earth that is saved by 
Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and a whole series of, you know, Motley Crue people. And I, too, noticed the asteroid deflection NASA thing. I mean, NASA has not gotten a lot of great accolades, mostly because of their bureaucracy and their kind of sclerotic use of lots of funds for little output, although the telescope, the recent telescope, was absolutely mm. extraordinary. And uh, it is a reminder that there are things that government can do well. I mean, I think uh, we talked to Che Bolton, too, about uh, Interastra and, and his whole sort of the, the new emerging space economy that clearly NASA has been not a leader in the past 10 years relative to SpaceX and, and other more private institutions, but it remains a bundle of potential. And this was a good sign that, as you say, they can actually do things that are both creative and important. Yeah, and it's cool that one day we may not have Bruce Willis, but we may have NASA with the asteroid coronavirus. Wow. <laughs> How's that? Deep thoughts. <laughs> also, Deep Impact, speaking of deep thoughts, where the asteroid you know, kind of hit. Is this another movie? It's it's another movie. Okay. Yeah, another okay. with with Morgan Freeman playing oh. the president and uh, Tia Leone. You know, anyway, you can <laughs> anyway. all go look up Astro Asteroid Disaster Movies for five hundred, Alex. <laughs> well, I have one more thing about NASA, so we can add this onto the Jeopardy board. Obviously, right now, one of our huge sources of emissions are airplanes and all of this airplane travel. And one of the things that's actually preventing us from emissionless airplanes is batteries. Another thing that like doesn't sound so fun and exciting, but it's actually fun and exciting because NASA has developed a new kind of battery called solid state batteries. And they're lighter, they're safer, there's no liquids in them, so it's not like a lithium battery. Hence the word solid state. Solid state, exactly. But that means in a plane, because it's lighter, you can put it into an aircraft or like really large vehicles. It's not going to overheat or catch fire. And it means that like in the future, we could actually be on a plane that not only is good for the planet, but is completely silent. That is true. We are a ways away from the either commercialization or even the NASification of the deployment of these. But it is a reminder that there is a whole bevy, a whole plethora of technologies that are in sort of far more than experimental stage and far less than commercial deployment stage that we just don't you know hear about as much because mm -hmm. they have not shown up in Teslas and they haven't shown up yet. But there are certainly a lot of people who would argue quite passionately that we are only a heartbeat away from a battery revolution that will really change the equation, not just of cars, but of planes and helicopters and sort of everything. Yeah. And it's a good reminder too that NASA is not just dealing with like random space rocks, right? <laughs> There's a, Correct. a lot of real world applications that we've talked about with Shay as well. So that's it for space. We're done. We're done with space. We've done space. We're done. <laughs> we've talked about it twice and we're done. But I have one more and I'm curious if any of our American listeners have seen this change in pharmacies yet, because it's supposed to be sort of starting on the ground now that hearing aids can be bought over the counter. I'm sorry, what? Hearing. <laughs> I fell for that for a half second before I caught that joke. That was good. That was really good. <laughs> for the first time, hearing aids are available over the counter at major pharmacy chains and other retailers without the need to see a doctor first. We get more from CBS's Roxana Saberi. Buying a hearing aid over the counter could turn the sound back up for some people with mild to moderate hearing loss. It's meant to be very user-friendly. Consumers can get the device, set it themselves, and go on from there. So I don't know how many people know this. I guess I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't know this, or you've already gone through the hearing aid process. Anyway, you need a prescription to get a hearing aid. And hearing aids are quite expensive. And obviously, anyone who's American knows that if you can avoid getting caught in the insurance tornado, it's better not to. And this legislation was actually introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren. I think it was 2016 or 17, 2017. And it's taken up till now <laughs> to be put through and uh, realized on the ground in pharmacies. But for me, this is like a rare American insurance win. That something has gotten, you know, taken out of the claws of American insurance companies. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole set of regulatory capture issues, right, that began with good intentions, protecting the consumer, 
you still can't buy contact lenses through Warby Parker without a prescription from a licensed either doctor or ophthalmologist and or optometrist. That's a very specific experience, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but it's, a, you know, it's like the hearing aid one of you can't buy certain things that I'm sure there was a, a perfectly reasonable reason why you needed a gated experience or you needed to have someone sign off. I mean, that eyewear maybe because you shouldn't be undercorrected when you're driving. But once these things are much more ubiquitously available, cheaper, and it's hard to imagine like what harm a hearing aid would do if you feel you can't hear. So hopefully things will move much more in that direction rather than in a restrictive, we're going to make sure that you have to go through 14 different hoops in order to get something that you could walk into a pharmacy and buy. Right. Yeah. And I did mention cheaper, but cheaper, they are definitely supposed to be from, you know, four or $5,000 for like a really nice one to a few hundred. So yeah, that would be cheaper. That would be cheaper. And I should say too, that it's possible to, to go overboard on this. You know, I, I live in Greece as people who listen to the podcast will know. And up until very recently, you did not need a prescription to get antibiotics, which meant that right. antibiotics were being, you know, passed around like candy and lots of people with viral infections taking antibiotics, which is bad for all sorts of reasons. So, right. um, yeah. The argument, the argument is it's the Goldilocks situation, right? You don't want mm. no regulation and you don't want intense thickets of regulation. You want the right amount of regulation that is suited to the issue and the moment and finding that Happy median is not easy and no one gets it right, but maybe there's a self-corrective mechanism going on to help us get it right-er. We can do it. That'll be our next season. What could go right-er? <laughs> Sounds great. I mean, at least you know with hearing aids that you're not going to create some kind of like antibiotic resistant something or other that's going to take over humanity. So there's that. So that's our news of the week. And again, these are things that people I'm sure were aware of in, in little nuggets. I think one of my teenage sons mentioned the asteroid deflecting NASA thing because it was cool. Mm. But they are not the kinds of things that get headline attention. You know, there's no such thing as good news. Uh, yes, occasionally there's a medical breakthrough, a scientific breakthrough that gets accolades and notice when it's extraordinary and unusual. And, and the recent, you know, the telescope and the pictures that the space telescope provided were, mm. I think a lot of people saw those and were astonished and, and really transported. You know, it was a really nice moment of almost like all of us taking a deep breath, looking up mm. either metaphorically or literally and seeing the wonders of what we do not know out there. But those moments are rare and they should be less rare. Absolutely. Amen. Hosanna. All of those things. Thank you again, Emma. Thanks, Zachary. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven. Our editor is Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Puckalomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to sign up for the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org.